Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps, which are due out in December. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife, Absite Review. Today we're covering spleen. So let's, John, let's jump right in with some anatomy and physiology. So what are the main ligaments? There are, there are some minor ligaments, but what are the most surgically important ligaments and attachments to the spleen? Yep, this, these are all what hold the spleen up into the left upper quadrant. So you have your gastrosplenic, which contains your short gastrics. Your spinal real ligament, which contains your splenic vessels and then the tail of the pancreas. And your spinocolic and your splenophrenic ligaments. Great. So gastrosplenic, splenorenal, splenocolic, splenophrenic. Those are your attachments. And you mentioned some things that that run in there that are important. Kevin, blood supply to the spleen. Yeah. So it's pretty straightforward. You got your splenic artery, which is a, has a very tortuous course and runs on the superior aspect of the pancreas. And then you have your splenic vein, which runs posterior to the pancreas, which is important for some conditions we'll discuss. And then you also have your short gastric. So even with a splenic artery embolization, you can actually still have function of your spleen from these short gastrics that feed the spleen also. Great. Okay. John, what does the spleen do? What are the spleen functions? So it has many functions, including storing platelets, filters erythrocytes, re-energizes erythrocytes through pitting, the immune function, it's the lar- largest concentration of lymphoid tissue in the body. And just a reminder, pitting is removal of intracellular products from the erythrocytes. And then you have opsonization by tufsin and propertin. There are key proteins in this process. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know why that's important, but it shows up every once in a while. The tufsin and proparidin, these are, these are proteins involved in the opsonization uh, process uh, of the spleen. So just one of those rogue memorization things that you have to do. Kevin, we, we talked about the spleen, break it up into red and white pulp. What, 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 do, what do we mean by that? And what are the different functions of those, of those different structures? Yeah, thankfully, it actually kind of makes sense, or at least for my simple brain. The red pulp filters the RBCs. The white pulp does the immune functions. So, John, you're a trauma surgeon. You take out a lot of spleens. What would you see on a peripheral blood smear after you take out one of your patient's spleen? What what might you see on a peripheral blood smear? Yeah, I can, you can get these from either an absent spleen or a damaged spleen that's not functioning. So, there's a few that are that used to be tested more on the outside when it was focused on basic sciences, but occasionally they still show up. So you have your how jolly bodies, which are nuclear remnants, and this is the most reliable finding you'll usually see with an absent spleen. You have your Papperheimer bodies, which are iron deposits. 
You can have target cells, which are immature red blood cells, Heinz bodies, which are intracellular denatured hemoglobin, spur cells, which is a deformed membrane of the RBC. And Jason, what if I definitively personally took out the spleen and I don't see any of these on the peripheral blood smear? Yeah, I think that's actually what you're going to see on the outside. If you see this show up in a question at, at all, you have a patient that was had a splenectomy for whatever reason, and then they have a normal peripheral blood smear and you don't see these. And what you have to think about is that there's an accessory spleen. So Kevin, what are some indications for splenectomy? I mean, we, we kind of covered, you know, we know John takes them out in the setting of trauma, so unstable trauma patients, but what are other indications for splenectomy? Yeah, there are some hematologic disorders such as ITP and serocytosis. Um, some patients can have a splenic abscess. Sometimes there's some symptomatic cyst within the spleen. And then there are some primary malignancies, mainly non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Okay, so- so, John, splenic trauma, you know, we talk about splenic spleen trauma pretty extensively in the trauma chapter, but can you just briefly take us through some principles of managing splenic trauma? Yeah, splenic trauma can also be secondary to iatrogenic trauma. The most commonly you'll see this is during foregut operations or colon procedures, we have excessive attraction on the ligaments. But the generalization, if you have splenic trauma, such as penetrating trauma, you're going to perform a splenectomy. Blood injury of the spleen does have options for selective non-operative management. These patients have to be hematically stable without peritonitis. Otherwise, they will get some sort of laparotomy and splenectomy. Non-operative management of splenic trauma includes observation in hospital or the ICU, depending on how they're doing, serial dialo examinations, serial hematocritic measurements, and sometimes a period of immobility and some institutional protocols. You also consider angiography intervention for splenic injuries that most likely have some torpor contrast blush. You can do this. There's a lot of different scales you can use, but to determine whether a patient is a good candidate for angiography intervention. But typically, this is a conversation of your IR colleagues. But once again, the patient has to be hematically stable without peritonitis. Okay, great. And yeah, be sure to listen to the trial episode and review the trial chapter. We, we talk a little bit more extensively about splenic trial. But moving on, Kevin. You mentioned some hematologic disorders. So about idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, ITP, what's the etiology? What's the cause behind this? Yeah, this is thought to be an autoimmune issue where you have autoantibodies to the glycoprotein 2B3A and 1A2A. Okay. And yeah, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we need to rule out other causes of thrombocytopenia. What's the initial management? Yeah, generally, steroids and IVIG can help manage this. Sure. And then splenectomy is uh, for medically refractory cases or for recurrence. And you you can avoid the need to have patients on longstanding steroids because that's obviously not a a good idea if you can avoid it. A good response to steroids does portend a a generally favorable response after splenectomy. So let's say you're taking a patient, they've been on IVIG and steroids, they had a good response but they have a recurrence and they relapse and you're preparing to take them for surgery. The platelets are 50. When would you transfuse those platelets? It can be tempting to transfuse these patients before going to the operating room, but with this condition, you actually need to wait until they, unless they have intraoperative bleeding. Yeah, so you typically only transfuse for if you're having intraoperative bleeding. And when you intraoperatively, you should give those platelets uh, after ligating the splenic artery because that will help prevent those consumption of those transfused platelets. Okay, how about hereditary spherocytosis? That's one of the more common hematologic disorders. How do they present? 
So hereditary serocytosis is usually presents with anemia and splenomegaly, as an autosomal dominant defect in the cell membrane protein spectrum, which leads to RBCs that are less deformable, which then be colored by the spleen. Splenectomy is recommended for symptomatic patients older than six years old because you want them to develop an, an immune function prior to splenectomy. Yeah, great. Awesome. So yeah, hereditary spherocytosis, you got that spectrum protein that'll show up every once in a while. We present with the anemia, splenectomy after the age of six for symptomatic patients. And now, now John, there's something you need to consider at the time of splenectomy in these patients, and uh, it's an additional procedure. What am I getting at there? Yeah, sometimes you have to add on a cholecystectomy at the time of surgery. Uh, you want to check for gallstones because the massive amount of hemolysis may produce bilirubin stones. Yeah, so they're very common for these patients to have bilirubin stones. So you get a riopapadrin ultrasound, and you may want to perform a cholecystectomy at the time as well. Kevin, back to you. So pyruvic kinase deficiency, what is that? Yeah, this is a congenital hemolytic anemia caused by impaired glucose metabolism. And what's the role of splenectomy in these patients? Yeah, it actually helps uh, prevent transfusion requirements. Yeah, so these patients can have uh, anemia episodes that are triggered by infection, uh, fava beans, funnily, funnily enough, anti-malarials, and certain antibiotics like sulfas and, and nitrofurantoin. There are some other hemoglobinopathies like sickle cell, thalassemias that are additionally rare indications for splenectomies. Those are not going to show up on the outside. But something that might is a splenic abscess. So who gets splenic abscesses, John? Yeah, the most common cause for this is IV drug use. We also can get it from endocarditis and secondary infections uh, from a traumatic pseudocyst. And also patients with sickle cell disease. Yeah, so these are, are typically diagnosed uh, on CT scan. And there are some CT characteristics that are important for, for management. So how, how do we manage these, John? So patients with a uh, unilocular abscess with a thick wall and they're stable can undergo percutaneous drainage. Patients with multilocular thin-walled abscesses, you have to be suspect echinococcal abscesses, and you may need to perform a spinectomy. Okay, great. Okay, so, so yeah, spinectomy abscess on the outside, if it's unilocular, uh, thick-walled, uh, percutaneous drainage uh, for those multilocular uh, spinectomy, um, and that does show up as frequently tested. Um, so not let's talk not more about abscesses, but let's let's talk about splenic cyst. Um, so uh, what is this? splenic cyst look like, uh, Kevin? Yeah, so this is a well-defined but hypodense lesion without an enhancing ring. Okay, and sometimes we talk about true cysts versus false cysts. What's the distinction there? Yeah, so the true cysts are the ones that are either congenital or parasitic or neoplastic, whereas the false cysts are generally post-traumatic pseudocysts. Yeah, so sometimes you'll see somebody who's got a, a, a history of a blunt trauma that will show up with a, a, a splenic cyst. What do we do about them? So if they're asymptomatic, we leave them alone. Uh, serology and imaging characteristics can typically rule out parasitic cysts or malignancy. Okay, what about um, you know large cysts or if they're symptomatic? Yeah, generally, if they're greater than five centimeters or symptomatic, you can consider a laparoscopic cyst excision or fenestration. Perfect. Okay. Um, but John, what's a very common thing that we'll see is a splenic hemangioma. Yeah, that's your most common splenic tumor, uh, and you have to perform a splenectomy if it's, if it's symptomatic. Great. Okay. Kevin, what about a malignancy of the, a malignant tumor of the spleen? What's the most common primary malignant tumor of the spleen, and what are some important associations? 
Yeah, so that's angiosarcoma, and this is uh, commonly tested. It's associated with vinyl chloride and thorium dioxide exposure. Great, a- absolutely. Yeah, those are just kind of uh, buzzword associations that, that you need to know. Angiosarcoma, primary malignant tumor of the spleen. Other it can be aggressive. They're high, very high mortality, but you can perform a splenectomy if caught in time. But unfortunately, they typically present very advanced and late. Okay, how about lymphomas, John? Yeah, so the one you might see is not Hodgkin's lymphoma, and most common is CLL. You need to perform a splenectomy if you have anemia or thrombocytopenia. Yeah, CLL, most common lymphoma, the spleen, splenectomy for anemia or thrombocytopenia. Kevin, back to you for splenic artery aneurysms. Can you talk to me a little bit about how these present and when to treat them and, and how to approach them? Yeah, so th- this is the most common visceral artery aneurysm, most commonly in women. As generally found incidentally on CT scans for other things. And so actually the guidelines have changed since we made this abset review. It's now greater than three centimeters is when it's indicated for treatment or pregnant women or women of childbearing age, regardless of size. And so the way we treat these is generally with endovascular coil embolization of the aneurysm, or occasionally you can do a placement of a covered stent. There's a few scenarios where you can have a very distal aneurysm in the high limb of the spleen that's kind of not accessible to coil embolization. So then you'd maybe need to do a splenectomy. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the thing to watch for is those pregnant women or women of childbearing age. It's because there's a 70% uh, risk of rupture during pregnancy. And that's the way you may see it show up on the exam is uh, somebody who shows up uh, with uh, spontaneous hemoperitoneum and they're unstable, a pregnant patient. Um, so you want to be concerned that there's a splenic artery aneurysm. Um, John, let's move on and talk about uh, post-splenectomy infection. We talked about this a little bit in the trial chapter, but let's dive a little bit deeper. Well, what can you tell me about post-splenectomy infections? Yeah, so when you remove the spleen, you get decreased levels of IgM and IgG. That leads to increased susceptibility to encapsulate organisms such as strep pneumo, and the seria meningitis and agents for influenza. Okay, when do you vaccinate patients? So you want to typically vaccinate these patients two weeks prior to an splenectomy or prior to hospital discharge following an emergent splenectomy. Yeah, great. If you can get two weeks out post-op, it's recommended. But like you say, for trauma patients without reliable follow-up, you want to make sure they're vaccinated before they leave the, the hospital. Now, what about overwhelming post-splenectomy infection? Who's at risk for this? Yeah, the highest risk group is in children who've had spleners removed, you know, early in their life, and especially specifically those with hemologic disease such as beta thalassemia. Yeah, so those beta thalassemia children are at very high risk for, or I would say very high, but the highest risk for overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. And I have seen that exact question show up on the exam. So, John, if you're concerned or suspicious for OPSI, what do you do? Yeah, you want to draw blood cultures, but you don't wait to get a positive culture to start broad-spectrum antibiotics. You just start them immediately. Okay. Is there any role for prophylactic antibiotics? Uh, you can consider in children less than 10 years old, but not really not in adults. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you'll, the, the people will have a prescription for antibiotics. So if they start to develop uh, signs or symptoms, they can you know start antibiotics very soon. Again, consider it for those very high-risk uh, children, but for the most part, people are not doing prophylactic antibiotics for OPSI. Okay, so that so that wraps up our review of spleen. Let's, we're going to move right into some quick hits. So, as always, so let's start with Kevin. 
So you have a patient that's staspospinectomy for ITP with persistent thrombocytopenia and a peripheral smear without howl jolly bodies. What are you thinking? Yeah, so in this situation, we're thinking about there's possibly an accessory spleen. And what are you going to do? How do you, how would you confirm or rule that out? So you can actually do a radionucleotide scan to look for that you tag the red blood cells to look for accessory spleen. Yeah, so a tagged red blood cell scan is what you do. And the most common location? Splenic hilum. Perfect. John, most common organism associated with that OPSI, that overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Yeah, so of the three encapsulated organisms, strep pneumo would be the highest. Yeah, strep pneumo most common. Okay, Kevin, uh, you have an, uh, a patient with abdominal pain and a CT with the spleen in the right lower quadrant. Uh, abdominal ultrasound shows no flow in the splenic vein. What's the diagnosis? Yeah, this is a wandering spleen. And what's that caused by? So you don't you have a failure of the fusion of the dorsal mesogastrum, leading to the lack of splenic ligaments. Yeah, so that puts them at risk for a splenic torsion and an infarction. What's the treatment? Splenectomy of splenic infarction. Otherwise, you can do a splenopexy. Perfect. Okay, John. Your most common source of post-splenectomy bleeding. It has a pesky short gastric. Yeah, it's always the short gastrics. Okay, Kevin, treatment of portal vein thrombosis uh, after a splenectomy? Anticoagulation. Sure, anticoagulation. Okay, uh, John, you have a patient with abdominal pain following splenectomy. CT shows a large, low attenuation containing fluid collection in the surgical bed of the lesser sac. What's the diagnosis? No, you weren't careful during the operation and you injured the tail of the pancreas, so it's probably a pancreatic leak. Perfect. Yeah, you got to watch for that tail of the pancreas during a splenectomy for sure. And what's the treatment for this? So You usually can manage these with a percutaneous drain. Yeah, percutaneous drain. Uh, excellent. Kevin, you have a patient with a fever, hemolytic anemia, renal failure, purpura, neurologic changes, Diagnosis. Sounds like this patient has thrombotic, thrombocytopenia, purpura. These patients generally have fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and then renal neurologic manifestations. Yeah, so this is caused by a defective ADAMS-13 metalloproteinase, which is a von Willebrand's cleaving protein. And this results in platelet aggregation in the microvasculature. And so what's the treatment for it? Plasmapheresis. Perfect. All right. So that wraps up our review of the spleen, abside review behind the knife. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 abside. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the abside.